Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Erin Hill. Prof Hill, thank you so much for being with us. I'm cuddling myself suddenly. I don't know why. But in any event, it's very nice to have you here. Thank you so much for being with us. And share with us, if you would, what's going through your mind at the moment, what's dynamizing you, what matters to you, what interests you. Yeah, I'm really glad to be here. And, um, you know, it's it's funny what has been on my mind, you know, has kind of changed a little bit this morning. One thing that's on my mind is the report that I received um, that's been generated by a group um, at the UCs. I'm at UC San Diego in the communication department um, about sexual violence on UC campuses and Title IX offices and the sort of survivor experience with the various kind of mechanisms of the university um, and so on. And I've been looking at, you know, things like ethnic centers, which is some areas in which people who feel discrimination um, or who experience discrimination on campus can go. We have an underdeveloped kind of set of those here at UCSD. And so I've just been thinking a lot about what I'm learning um, about the kind of reality versus the imaginary of some of these um, parts of a of a kind of a, a common thing that I mostly look at when I'm thinking about the media industry workplace. And that's my other interest. I'm interested in media industry labor broadly, but I've written a lot about marginalized um, folks, uh, depending on the era, mostly women uh, and mostly white women of, of the kind of 20th century so far. But the next thing that I'm doing is really kind of considering um, the, you know, both the kind of experience of a certain group of firsts, I would call them, the first female executives uh, of development and production, the first uh, female heads of studios um, in the United States, which is sort of produced in a, in some ways by a lot of the similar agitation about, you know, from outside groups and from activist groups and from, you know, threats from the EEOC, which would lead in the early 70s and the late 70s into like with a wave, it would end in a wave of hiring one woman. And um, the women who made it through in those instances, they aren't just at random. They, ha they have certain qualities and characteristics and certain backgrounds. And those um, lead them to have success, but there's always, there are these costs and they have to sort of create personas that help them play to those strengths. They're, they're the kind of people that are able to recruit male mentors, which is really almost the only way for them to have any real credibility once you're reaching these higher levels. So I'm, it's, I've been doing a lot of thinking that I haven't done as I previously mostly focused below the line on the executive kind of transformation of studios and how, you know, <laughs> executive success manuals. And finally, I think I would tie it all together, uh, sort of accessing some of this through the memoirs of these women um, and comparisons to memoirs of men of similar stature that they worked with. Who, the men's memoirs are all like first in his class, you know, like head of the, you know, the front line and the women's are, are called um, they can kill you, but they can't eat you. Uh, you'll never eat lunch in this town again. Hello, he lied, and so on. And the women are quite colorful, and they're very imperfect uh, and really interesting to me. But 
ultimately, I'm trying to understand their experience in what I'm calling a um, masculinity contest culture. It's kind of an organizational studies um, term and trying to get some lessons and a few uh, women of color who were making, you know, were in some executive levels at this time to try and understand what's, what is um, as a kind of, to understand the pipeline problems that we have now in the area that I've not only written about, but worked for 20 years as a sort of freelancer, which is to film television development. And um, I've written about this in the early 20th century through the 60s with the story departments and these kind of female friendly and and or feminized areas of story development. Development in film television is the kind of finding and shaping stories for the screen and that includes acquisition rights and those kinds of things as well as development of the story. So I'm curious because I think that women are much more sort of well positioned at least Forget, you know, we can't, I, I don't know what their experience on the job is, but more well positioned to get to some of these positions while, um, especially white women, while people of color, people from other, you know, backgrounds from other countries, both in terms of being storytellers and in terms of choosing which stories are told, there is a lot more that needs to be done. And there's a whole pipeline that goes through internships and privilege <laughs> And it has to do with, well, uh, this is the kind of story that I think sounds real, you know, all of those issues. So those are a lot of my interests. You could, I've been in, involved in talking a lot about the strike, but you can kind of follow that interest from, from the labor slash um, student safety problems on campus and organizational issues with campuses through these media organizations and how women in this instance and other groups who are marginalized in society um, experience those spaces. So, Prof, the, the plurality of our listeners is in the US, but the majority outside. So just to provide some context, UC refers to the University of California. Hmm. There are 10 campuses and you're at UC San Diego. Right. Title IX refers to the Federal Education Act in the United States. And Title IX, which has been discussed a bit before in the podcast, is about the attempt beginning in the 60s to end discrimination by gender and other means on federally funded university campuses. It's been very important in areas like sports, for example. And when you refer to below the line, this is about the way in which Hollywood as an accounting norm has an, a notion of above the line, which is stars and directors and screenwriters and producers, the names that people frequently associate with media production, versus below the line, which is the people who are doing maybe the stunts, the food, the wardrobe, the makeup, yeah? And it's yep. a class distinction and frequently a racial and gender distinction and certainly a distinction in terms of the labour process, Yeah. Absolutely. And to be honest, I often opt for the terms media makers and media workers, which is sort of adapted from Leo Rost, and a sociologist who studied Hollywood in the 1940s, because a lot of the, the workers that I'm concerned with wouldn't be counted as below the line in some in, you know, in either the budget or, as you said, this invisible line separates the the fixed costs, the lower, the you know, the laborers from the unfixed, the director that can demand millions of dollars and so forth, and the property that costs a lot. 
you know, like the intellectual property of the um, book it's adapted from. So um, I use media workers because there are a large percentage of workers who don't necessarily aren't affiliated with a particular production, but are, you know, as a collective, immensely important to that production. And in the, you know, in the studio era, that was all the women who were typing and keeping records in every department and were basically, you know, in every, there's no other worker that could be found in every single department in every studio. And they're, you know, predominantly women. And when industrial production was scaled up as such within, you know, an individualized product of films at studios, it was that that growth was scaled through women's work. Um, and so it definitely is the case now. And I'm now switching over to the media makers, the women who are trying to enter those elite circles, um, which have more power to determine who is hired and fired and which stories are told and um, to make deals and to actually distribute budgets. So, and I would say the the one thing I would add about the Title IX office is that now the function that those offices serve on campuses in the United States is we're all, all educators are mandatory reporters, which mean if, means if a student tells us they've experienced violence, sexual violence, harassment, those kinds of things, we are required to report to the Title IX office. However, these offices like the, the police departments on and off campus that receive some of these complaints are often you know, under-trained and, and the students, in this instance, the survivors have reported pretty poor experiences there. And so I've, I've been struggling with the fact that I feel sort of yoked, attached, <laughs> hooked up to Title IX. I'm not allowed to hear with confidentiality my students' concerns without reporting it to this, this place that they may not experience the treatment that they expect. And um, but, the, you know, this this report's really interesting because it it gauges what other parts of campus are helpful and gives a, a sense of the kind of array of experiences. So that's the kind of data that I look for about the film industry. And um, I've seen some of similar studies being produced in some of the other fields I've worked on and below the line. And as you say, there are the below the line workers or the media workers they're def these are definitely race and gender lines and there's a lot of occupational stereotyping even today or you know there's not a official segmentation or segregation practices but IATSE has received has released data that indicates that for example um, Latino men in Southern California are underrepresented in every category except manual labor categories in terms of their proportion of the population of California versus their um, proportion in the unions. And so, and men with Asian heritage or Asian men are underrepresented in every single category, including animation, but animation because of associations with technology and probably anime, I don't know, has, a, you know, they have a little more toehold there. Uh, and women are the vast majority of several unions. And those workers don't always get represented as equally by their unions, because unions will, will say, well, we have to represent all our members and they're a minority group within a larger union of locals. So these issues are extremely complex. And that's what I I like about, I don't like that their problems are complex to solve, but they're, trans, they're on their surface, incredibly complex and involving a lot of different layers and different kind of knowledge bases to understand. And so I like I've been thinking about that report because I like when rich 
information is collected um, to give us a better sense of what's happening in these areas. And just again for context, IATSE is the International Alliance of Theatrical Stages. Oh, yeah. <laughs> keep doing no, the don't acronym. worry about it. It's my, I'm the below the line acronym giant here, as it were. You know, I, yeah. I, I'm doing the cleanup work. Uh, and it's a pretty powerful union and, and worth noting for people outside the United States that there are very few areas where unionism is successful in the U.S., Hollywood is one, pro sports is another, and some areas of public service a third. And one of the reasons why they're so powerful in Hollywood is that decades ago the studios cut a deal such that the administration of costly things like healthcare and retirement would be undertaken by the unions. And so for all that producers and the studios disagree with the unions and fight with them. They don't want to bust them. They don't want to break them because they perform a really valuable organizational function on behalf of the ruling class. Absolutely. Uh, and sorry, I interrupted you. No, go ahead. Go ahead, please. I was going to say that, um, and that's why another, you know, IATSE is very powerful. Um, and so is the WGA, the Writers Guild of America and SAG, the Screen Actors Guild, which are the two organizations that perhaps people outside the U.S. Um, this year have heard about in in that they were on strike for sort of six months of the year. Um, so the three of them, those groups together um, are really interesting to look at. And I've uh, been doing a lot of thinking about, in fact, the way that the kind of corporate culture of Hollywood has been brought into, I don't know if a conflict or intersection uh, with the a very different, in my opinion, sort of parallel corporate culture in Silicon Valley, where companies like Netflix and Amazon, who are major streaming companies worldwide, are, um, are, are sort of originated this kind of worship of founder CEOs versus in Hollywood, this acknowledgement of talent versus corporate talent. Uh, it's been a, it's been interesting to see, especially in public statements and sort of the way that, that they ha didn't help their case. A lot of the CEOs of companies that either emulate or aspire to, or are from those kind of um, Silicon Valley kind of backgrounds. <laughs> It just didn't work in the way I think they hoped. I don't know that either side was incredibly successful, but it was interesting to see this kind of, it feels like people in those corporate worlds are are kind of getting high on their own supply a lot, you know, pumping each other up. If you read about Uber and how their executive branch operated versus Hollywood, where there's a little more, there have been these massive labor fights over a hundred years that have created a little bit more sense of, labor as an immovable force that must be dealt with in a way that isn't just going around. Absolutely. I think that's a great insight. And the appalling, disgraceful sanctification of people like Steve Jobs or whatever. <laughs> David Zaslav. <laughs> I mean, any, any of the bros. Yeah. Um, it's different in Hollywood. It's different because of the nature of stardom and the way that system was created. In any event, just uh, moving on, if I could, to the current project, and then we might go back to the earlier one. Sure. Um, 
So I presume when you're talking about women who are now in the corporate suite, in the C-suite or whatever, you're, sorry, the podcat is going a little crazy. It's time for the podcat's midnight snack here in Madrid. He's He's been given the snack, but he's not getting the kind of attention he thinks he warrants. So he's. I think my podcat and your podcat should meet because mine is very mad that she didn't get more treats and snacks. Oh. I was expecting if you you may see her come and yell at me at a certain point. She seems to know when I'm talking to somebody on the phone, but she, uh, complaints now, have been registered. <laughs> what do you recommend for treats? What's a good I treat? just as little as possible, but because my my cat is large right now she's getting bigger uh i just give her like i don't have dry food out for her to just graze because i, I do that when i'm out of town sometimes and it's just not good so i just put a handful in a little a little kind of puzzle thing that she can pull them out of i mean just it's not a difficult puzzle it's like little silos you see my guy i've had cats before but he's the first one i've had since he was a kitten mm. in the past i've inherited adults and he's transitioning into a very difficult adolescence from my perspective. He's a bit macho. And one of the things the veterinarian is telling me is that I can't keep feeding him kitten food because he'll get obese, won't be healthy, right? Yeah. But it's fine, proving very difficult to get adult food he likes. The good news is that I've found vegan dried food that is produced and the vet is happy if 50% of his diet is vegan and yeah. apparently dried food is particularly important with male cats in terms of later urinary infections or something. So oh, anyway. I had not heard this. I keep hearing only that dry food is always not good, which I've never experienced as a lot. I mean, we had cats when I was a child, but just because of dehydration, but I, I mean, I do a mix, you know, I give her some actual, like really like what I consider the Cheetos for cats, like real treats, but it's like, I give her a little nibble in the middle of the day of some crunchy stuff. And mm. then I do some wet food, but it's very cheap. I'm not over. This cat is weird. She just, she doesn't like human food. She doesn't want it. She is very strange. She has really a very few interests and all she likes to do is be wrapped up in see-through plastic bags. It doesn't make sense, but that's what she likes. I'm a soft touch. I'm definitely the daddy who wants to be loved and just says, yeah. darling, anything you want, right? Anyway, sorry. This was yeah, not the boy cats are more loving, so that's good. Exactly. Okay, well, so yeah. back to my work. Back to your work and the question of the current work before we go on to your your wonderful book from a few years ago. So in terms of these women who are in these executive suites and below that level, but executives nonetheless, this is people whom some folks may have heard of, like Sherry Lansing, for example, mm -hmm. would be an yes. instance of this. Yeah. Two of the, the two that, I mean, I, I have written a chapter that will come out in the Oxford Handbook of Film History that um, John Lewis has edited. Um, and it's, I follow kind of a rising class and I'm looking at because my argument is based on everything I know that they 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 find their way into these really hyper masculine spheres, which is the production. Um, it, for anyone who is, is not a, a student of film history in the United States, um, 
the studios are typically led at least in in if they're divisions or not of other companies by a president of the studio and then a president of production, um, at least at this time when I'm writing in the 70s and 80s. And under them will be the vice presidents of production development or, you know, sometimes it's called something else and marketing and branding and et cetera, et cetera. So, but there's this extreme, the being involved in production, green lighting, you know, funding and producing films is extremely contested terrain that it's the it's the kind of pinnacle of achievement it's the most powerful more recently there are like huge corporations and there's a little more to that structure but so the women are coming up through development particularly through you know in my research literary professions in new york um and particularly what's of interest about them is their connections and their, their you know, uh, Julia Phillips, the first woman to win an Oscar for best picture for her producing of um, The Sting. Uh, she, you know, I have a quote, you know, in her book, um, You'll Never Eat Lunch in This Town Again. She says, uh, you know, I think it might be Peter Goober. It's one of these people who is a major executive in Hollywood in the 80s he he hires her and she says i bring with me all of my, all of my coverage for the last two years of books coverage is the name that we give to the kind of book report <laughs> that people write uh who are called readers in hollywood about either a script or a book that they've read and it's a job that's the job that i've done for 20 years as a freelancer it's not it's a low-waged underpaid job in the in publishing it's a little bit more of a kind of it's it's a it's higher up on the food chain. Everybody's reading books and writing comments. So, the, you know, Linda Opst, a major producer in the 90s and 80s, also comes from, a, you know, and many of them have connections to powerful men in those industries. Many of these women are married to men whose pedigree is valuable. They're extremely talented. They're all brilliant. Uh, so when I mention the men they're associated with are the male mentors, that's not to say that they are um, underqualified in any way. It's also not to say that there aren't equally and more qualified women of color, women who were, you know, d disabled or had any kind of anything that was unattractive in any way to the male kind of, of power uh, structure that those people wouldn't equally have excelled in these roles. But these women were able to do what they were able to do uh, because the, this narrow opening was, was made for them. So, you know, this is my argument about every kind of marginalized group. They, of course, they excelled in these roles that were given to them based on stereotypical views of, of their innate traits. They, anybody is going to, you know, these kinds of groups are going to excel at any role that they're allowed to do because they're humans and we do that, but also because they're really working hard and very, you know, it, it, there's a, a level of performance that and excellence that any kind of field that's masculinized that you're trying to break into or that's, you know, that you're going to have to run a gauntlet that nobody else is going to have to run. So, of course, the people that make it to these levels are that qualified, but they are also assisted in by men who either find them attractive, who um, usually they, Sherry Lansing, one of the people that I follow the most of this chapter, because I'm looking at a group of about 10 women, but I eventually focus in on the two. Um, I, the prologue is sort of Julia Phillips, who really is, do, is without a net in the seventies producing. She also produces Taxi Driver and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Um, and then she is fired 
presumably for drug use and for behavior. However, the amount of drug use in exactly those same offices and places by men um, and the kind of the, the treatment she gets from people like Trans Francois Truffaut is just absolutely brutal. Um, and she's like the other two has an extremely big personality. Um, and so that gets her places and doesn't. Anyway, so back to Don Steele and Sherry Lansing. They have sort of these opposing personas. Don Steele is famous in Hollywood. When I arrived there in the late 90s, early 2000s, I was told about her. She had just died of glioblastoma, a brain tumor. And um, she is known as the sort of bitch on wheels. Um, I think I one Rachel Abramowitz calls her the female fury. Um, she is the person that um, comes up and is sort of brought in through um, the MLB and reporting. And she's an early sports reporter in, in New York. Then she goes to Penthouse and Guccione, where she says women are treated fairly regardless. She's doing merchandise and acquiring things like, pardon my language, the cock sock from Europe and finding and making big money. Then she, she gets into a court case uh, because she decides to form her own company with her then husband, that distributes Gucci branded toilet paper and it's dubbed in the press, the toilet paper caper. So she gets out of that company, goes to Playboy to do merchandising and then goes into Paramount merchandising. And finally is brought up to be a development executive at Paramount under this quartet that are dubbed by, again, by the press and others as the, the Diller killers or the killer Dillers. Barry Diller as the president, Michael Eisner, um, president of production, I believe, uh, it might be Barry Diller's, you know, it, Don Simpson is president of production under Eisner, and then finally Jeffrey Katzenberg. And Don's recollection of this is that Diller taught us to kick, scream, and yell, and that Michael Eisner said, I won't know you're passionate about it enough to make a film until you stand on the table and scream your pitch at us and convince us, which is, she was like, I didn't know that, that they did it any other way at any other studio. So she receives a very interesting education um, and she is, her life is based around forging into masculinized spaces and behaving like men and doing exactly as they do and trying to kind of be as aggressive as they are. She's always in this one Armani suit, the only one she could afford and it's like armor. Anyway, her memoir and stories about her are so fascinating. I could go on about her, but um, I will say that uh, she was not treated well in any sense by many in Hollywood, as many fans as she might have. She was a big personality. She wasn't easy to work for. Um, she was probably a little bit abusive. I, I don't want to say she was fully abused. I don't know. <laughs> I know that she was as abusive to her staff as some of the men that I've named, but not more. And the men that she later worked with used that place stories in the trades she was on the cover of Los Angeles or of California Magazine as worst bosses issue. The other men inside are sweatshop owners. The woman is Dawn Steele. She's very rude to staff, but that's the kind of thing that happens when she dies of cancer. There's this sort of implicit or this kind of whispered thing amongst most of her non-fans, which is she deserved it. She got cancer because she's a bitch. Um, and yet she learned through that process that she should be not treating women as competition and that the men had kind of schnookered them all into believing that they were each other's competition. And the women who were her pallbearers at her funeral were all the women that ran major studios that she mentored into the business. 
Um, Sherry Lansing, very different. One of the few that didn't come through New York. Um, all these women were Jewish, by the way, and that is definitely a cofactor, um, except perhaps Julia Phillips. Um, but she was an actor initially. She became an actress. She was in, you know, even in several films. She did not feel like a natural actress. And she began to read scripts uh, for Ray Wagner to be a reader. And she had a lot of talent. And so she realized that she couldn't be authentic as an actor. She could be authentic in her kind of work um, as in development and finding stories. So she's a beautiful woman. She's an actress. And she plays what, you know, the, the title of her biography, but also I would say her persona. If Dawn is just like the men, better, you know, more aggressive than you are, <laughs> Sherry is the leading lady who plays this role. And I think the way that people talk about her, Robert Evans says, I've her no is better than everybody else's. Yes, I've never felt better, like more cared for. There's just many, many of these. I might be misattributing that quote, but Evan says, I can't count the number of times I walked in her office and said, she ain't going to romance me. She ain't going to seduce me. I'm going to get this done and I'll walk out feeling great with nothing that I wanted, essentially. And so that's not, Sherry Lansing is as tough as Dawn Steele and Dawn Steele is as human and emotional as Sherry Lansing. But these are the, these are the roots that they have to take because you have to have a way in this era to deal with men and to deal with what is, you know, this is a, a term coined by organizational researchers, but I would call a masculinity contest culture, which is still a, a dominant corporate culture in the United States and elsewhere. I think it's a little better in places like the UK where there has been some sort of interesting kind of levels of administrative kind of oversight added. I don't know how they work, but it's basically where success depends on the performance of hypermasculine traits, such as, you know, competition within the ranks. It's a dog eat dog, you know, um, various other things that, and this is why I got interested in this era, that do not apply equally to women and that when women perform them are seen as negatives. So unless, you know, that's why Dawn is basically assassinated throughout her career by various people who do not, um, do not allow that really they she can do it's how many women feel we do the things that are necessary for jobs we perform and we think i got away with it nobody hates me for being good at that and for having just told that person the truth or won that argument and then in your career later you realize they they didn't like that they i am being punished for that in subtle ways so dawn would always end up being punished for those things sherry got a little away a little bit less scathed in that area, but everybody for her entire career said she slept her way to the top because she had a, a relationship with one of her mentors before they worked together, Dan Melnick. And she said, it, it killed me. I never, I never could do that again because everybody just said that's all, her entire career is attributed to sleeping with somebody. And that's really the name, the title of the chapter is about the D girl, which is a term that was given to executive roles once women were doing them if they were an executive story executive finding stories for people and so on and so forth it's just sort of an elastic term that's applied to all women who work in development from assistant to like vice president and in movies these women are killed are fired etc when they stop being team players who are nurturing the men and start being the aggressive players that men are so that's the really the crux of what I'm looking at in that chapter. And my next chapter that I'm writing is about their passion, these two women's passion projects, which really to me reflect 
the projects that they felt most, most responsible for and that were most important to them in their careers, which really reflect this kind of environment they were in and the way that they relate to gender. So they didn't really relate in the same way to the women's movement, but the way that they related to gender and the workplace. And the films are Fatal Attraction and The Accused, if you, you know, just a spoiler. Uh, they both work on, I think, both films, but Dawn initiates Fatal, I mean, um, The Accused. Um, and after watching news reports over and over and over again of a, a gang rape in New York and the people being let off who incited this violence. And her then boyfriend, Martin Scorsese, is sitting in her Southern California apartment and she's watching it and getting enraged. And he says, make it a movie, Dawn. And um, it I don't think it's insignificant that it's a movie about a woman who feels she can enter masculinized spaces and that she can be with men in the way that men are together and who is um, betrayed and, you know, violated by those men because that, and, you know, that's prophetic and also um, retrospective for Dawn. And, and when you were sorry, I'll just say that the fatal attraction is that Sherry decides she's going to do that. She finds herself sitting outside the home of an executive at another studio that she had been quietly dating and they'd broken up and she was like, is he dating someone, you know, just sort of, and she felt herself sitting there and said, I'm a monster. I'm a corporate woman who's like sitting outside like a crazy lady. And uh, the original version of that movie did not involve the death of um, the, the, the dangerous woman. It's instead about consequences for the man, but in the test screenings, they said the, the head of that, their, that studio at that time, Ned Tennant, said they want us to kill the bitch with extreme prejudice. And so they did. Um, Glenn Close cried and begged and said, Michael Douglas, star and I think co-producer, you wouldn't let them do this to your character. And he said, <laughs> my favorite quote, he says, babe, I'm a whore, which really sounds like Michael Douglas to me. But in any case, Sherry with the kind of sexual, like, you know, powerful woman, her fears about herself and, you know, many women's fears in the workplace of taking on, quote unquote, the masculine grain and not and losing themselves as women. Um, both women express this in their in their writings and in their quotes. But for Sherry, the femininity and the sort of kind of sexuality with other men, you know, the, the sort of like history of people accusing her of of sleeping her way to the top and all of those things, fears about what being a powerful woman who had been divorced meant. Um, you can see that maybe that's a reason some of those projects spoke to them. And in terms of the era when some of these folks that you mentioned became famous, like Julia Phillips and so on, 80s and 90s to a certain extent, mm -hmm. late 70s, are eras when some of the men, including Don Simpson, who you referred to, are notorious for bullying, and that applies also to Diller and Eisner, but in the case of Simpson, of sexual violence, sexual excess, and drug excess. And sometimes some of these women, Julie Phillips confides to us as readers about this, got caught up in that culture of yeah. personal excess and often paid a terrible price in terms of health and happiness, as did many of the men. And certainly this issue of bullying is something that's quite edgy nowadays in California because there are lots of laws on the books now that make it 
potentially very costly to bully people, to scream and shout at them, to imagine that this is their, this is the way to make them sell their pitch to you. The problem being, of course, that whilst you can have those laws on the books in California, the sanction in Hollywood is just that, well, okay, fine, off you go now. You've, you've decided to take this to the law courts. You're fucked forever, right? Yeah, I have a recollection of that. I don't think it's changed very much. When outside intervention um, or when something like Me Too happens, uh, for uh, those specific sexual abuse that can obviously agitate for change in a way that isn't possible. But until those things happen, there are lots of Cal labor laws that are broken every day. And that is definitely one of them. Most people would just say, I'm not Scott Rudin, who is a New York executive that's reason enough to take it, had to take a step back because he was, and I've been in his office. I interviewed there atrocious. I, I mean, he, he threw things, he, sent people to the hospital and he was abusing them in many diverse ways. One of his former assistants, uh, he killed himself and his twin brother insists that he, that was the reason, which is not, I've worked in Hollywood for people who are not what they call a screamer, quote unquote, but I've been near those offices and even just people who are unpleasant to underlings. It's I couldn't handle, I'm not, I don't have that kind of personality that can take that in any way. And the people who can, some of them have real psychological problems um, that result from this, especially those that work at agencies. But the story I was going to tell you was when I was an assistant, one person did bring a suit about things we don't talk about outside. Her name was Amani Lyle. She was an African-American woman who was a writer's assistant, which is the person that takes notes in the writer's room, but also often writes a, a script for one episode of the season. She was a writer's assistant on Friends where... Apologies to all the you know new and old friends of fans of Friends, but the three or four of the male writers on Friends, I read the you know her twenty page deposition. They just make constant references to sex and talking about the women on the show, miming, masturbating under the table, just the level and degree of gross things they say in that room. And Lyle felt that some of it was directed at like intimidating her. She also couldn't get a computer to work with when her male colleagues could. She felt iced out because she didn't laugh or think it was funny. And she eventually brought the suit and she's made statements about it since that have been really interesting, um, saying I, I was going to be the first African-American to write an episode of Friends if I could just sit there and color, basically ignore it. And I just realized I'll never get anywhere anyway. I'm going to just do this. I can't. I heard about that suit when I was an assistant in Los Angeles to managers or I can't remember. Yeah, I think it was to the managers that I worked for and the executives in that office. I would hear them talk about it. they'd walk up to me, even my old boss, who was a showrunner um, or not, a, not the showrunner boss. But anyway, um, who had, you know, made a lot of stuff that I thought was very egalitarian said, oh, I heard. Did you hear about that case? It's terrible. She's terrible. She'll never work in this town again. She's disgusting. And I'm like, this was my first year out of college or my second year. Like, it's a real learning experience to how deeply baked in that culture of silence is and how much in, in it, a number of creative industries, including tech, including advertising, 
you can be compelled to do things that you would never think you would do or to hold viewpoints or to uh, allow a culture to exist and to be part of it because of your love for the kinds of movies and TV in my in my case the and your aspirations to be part of that the things that have made meaning in your life and that you connect to sometimes because of gender you know or because of experiences and traumas in your life you want to be part of that you want to tell those stories and she's disgusting she'll never work in this town again and that's what's said about everybody assistants when they try to you know when they make noises about moving um, things forward, doing anything, you'll never work in this town again. And it's very effective because people believe it. And with ask, with low, you know, vulnerable employees, it's true because there are aspirants who are drawn now through the internet ever more so toward these fields and are willing to do anything. And many of them have parental, you know, funds that they can exhaust while doing these jobs. But seven years later, they're still on a one of those jobs they haven't advanced and um, they don't have that money anymore and they have trauma. So there's a lot of great people out there. There's a lot of terrible people out there. And the point of that is that it's idiosyncratic and there is no oversight. So if you can have either the best or the worst, that's not a safe system. That's not a good system. That's a system with zero accountability. And that until literally somebody kills themselves and on uh, a newspaper or a, you know an outlet has the finally after 20 30 years has the willingness to publish it they can do those things with impunity because Scott Rudin the one i've mentioned who is a bully and an abuser um and Harvey Weinstein uh, who we all know of for gross reasons are were the most successful producers of independent films and of oscar films of their generation and Hollywood is full of insecurity and nobody knows how we get a thing made, how to repeat a success. We only know that Harvey Weinstein has magical taste and or ridiculously aggressive marketing and bullying kind of like force of will. I'm reading books about Weinsteins right now for this. And uh, it's really, it's a rough read. <laughs> they are harsh people, even when they're not sexually abusing people. And even Peter Biskin says, oh, the women said, oh, it's worse for the men because at least they couldn't be violent toward me. And I was like, can you revise, please, Peter Biskin? <laughs> I and believe that there are other stories to be told. Just a bit more context. So the writer's room refers to what happens in television series, especially mm -hmm. comedies in the United States, where sometimes quite large numbers of people actually sit around a table and share jokes and scenarii and ideas. And mm -hmm. it has been a very male-dominated space historically. And there are many instances like the one you mentioned of women being either in a tiny minority or the only person or being the only person of colour and having to put up with this kind of hypersexualized misconduct. And the showrunner refers to something quite complicated. So the runner in television is really a dog's body. I mean, you do what you're told and you chase around. But a showrunner is someone, and it's a fairly new term, who has a piece mm -hmm. of the action in investment terms and actually is in some sense, the, depending on how things are organised, the owner of the intellectual property or at least part thereof, right? Um, so perhaps we could 
uh, go back, back, back now, if we could, to your book, which is not talking about these executive level people by and large, or directors or scriptwriters, although they're there, and is in some sense not just excavating the history of women in Hollywood in more working class occupations or less prestigious ones, but actually countering an historiography that's excluded them. Yes. Because women, as you say in the book, are always present, but they're not present in this in the tall tales that mm-hmm. are told. So I wondered if you could, as they say in baseball, take us back, back, back into your book and how you uncovered the traces, because there weren't lots of memoirs by Dawn Steele or Sherry Lansing for you to rely on. Yes, and there were a few memoirs, but they weren't widely known. Uh, And, you know, for example, one of the memoirs that is important to that book is um, Meta Carpenter Wilde's memoir, A Loving Gentleman, which is about her her work for Howard Hawks and others as a script supervisor or script girl, as they were often called, but also her 30-year love story with William Faulkner. Uh, Faulkner, you know, the great American literary um giant who also sidelined in hollywood and um so she writes this really moving memoir and it's really kind of powerful interesting observations not only of faulkner but you know faulkner scholars are all over it but of her kind of experiences there and um anyway but to take you back as you asked um uh so as you your listeners may have um gleaned i a lot of my curiosities are driven by my own experiences my formative experiences as a young person working in film and television and i always wanted to be an academic and i wanted to be you know a film writer or or similar so i pursued the the latter first and um i noticed uh, that there was you know i came out of a generation uh, maybe people will laugh who are from a later generation but we really believed and i could see now that i'm doing my research i can see that Dawn Steele and her generation had the exact same belief, which is I believed for my generation that all these barriers, you know, the playing field, women's movement, playing fields level. I was like very considered myself a feminist, but also all we need to do is stream into these jobs and just do these jobs. And I didn't have that experience once I was on the job. It wasn't that I felt abject discrimination. It was that gender difference was very visible to me from the day I, you know, an executive helped me lift a, like a water cooler bottle. And he said, you know, I'm not, I'm not helping you because you're a woman, you know, but, like, you know, he, it was a very cute moment, but it was like, he he was like, I'm not being sexist, but yeah, but there were other moments. And as I write in this, the end of that book, when I speak to people who I came up with and others who I've met, I do a lot of talk, every party I'm at uh, in Hollywood, every kind of event, any screenings, I'm always asking people about their jobs, people I know, people I don't know. Um just like I ask my every driver I ever have for Lyft about their working conditions. But these little tiny things accumulate over time, even if the people that don't have these vast or deep and uh, traumatic experiences, everybody's got these little things. And when somebody who hasn't had one of those comes up to me and says, I have a question for you. And I'm like, is it about being a stunt woman and gender? <laughs> and they say, yes, yes. <laughs> um so when I was working, I noticed that casting directors uh, who came into the offices that I worked in seemed to be all women, but also that 
I mean, there were there were a few men. Uh, it's currently maybe ninety percent female. I think it's been anywhere from seventy five to ninety percent female. And a lot of the men um, who who do the job identify as queer or gay. Um, and I noticed that they also work in in pairs and trios. And I was curious about this. And that casting seems to involve a lot of little details and information, but also a lot of emotional judging. And it's a very kind of stressful operation with a lot of delivering of bad and news, both upward to the director and the producer about people in you know, and down to the actors. Um, so I got interested in that and I couldn't find any books on that in the library, except for books, you know, how to get into casting kind of books and maybe one, one article by Joseph Tarot about TV casting. And so I started to write about that. And then I, I had, you know, a typical grad student was going to write about like absolutely every profession and like the masculinized and the feminine. So I wound up writing about a few and learning a lot about Fordist production principles and scientific management of production and the early, the late 19th and early 20th century, which is really uh, plays a huge role in um, how different groups of people are segmented, as they would have called, or segregated in the workplace to serve industrial needs. And also something I've been looking at more recently in depth, how culture is created and produced to sort of shape these workforces and to sanction and rationalize the use of, say, women as typists. The, the figure of the typewriter girls is in the chapter I'm publishing soon is created entirely for that purpose because the new woman was too political. So the typewriter girl still wants to get married and still wants, isn't a shameful abandoner of home roles, but still wants to do that. So it allowed for women to come into the workforce. Why? Because they're plentiful, they're literate, unlike their brothers often, um, because of farm issues and work issues. And they're cheap. They can be paid cheaply, just as children can in the early, you know, Edison films, the children who are coloring those films, women and children. So the same doubly and triply for women of color, for men of color. And as I get into the studio system, you can see sort of in the late silent era how all of a sudden we need to impress Wall Street and we need to move from this heterogeneous kind of idiosyncratic system of production in Hollywood, early Hollywood, just like you can see almost operating in Silicon Valley in like the, the 80s and 90s to a serious large going concern and expanding in the way that industrial expansion has worked in the 1800s for most companies and you know, other industries in the United States, emulating those industries and importing their labor categories. So women and you know, black filmmakers outside of Hollywood had experienced low barriers between different trades and they were able to get training, they were able to be present on set because everything was happening in the same place. When we start to departmentalize and spatialize and divide up and separate tasks, women suddenly become the dedicated figure on set who minds all the details for everyone else. So I think of that in terms of like the circle of production, a little bit like the magic circle in game theory. It determines the limits and, and the rules and within that circle, everybody can play. So for me, the women in their various capacities in the categories of imported labor, for, you know, um, light manufacturing, the ink and paint workers, the um, various roles in editing that were not were lower than editor, like patching and expecting film, and then all the secretaries and all of the typists and stenographers, and there's many other. There's also some some link to home roles, like all of the drama coaches and uh, a lot of the you know talent department workers versus casting, which was still men as an executive role. So all of those 
kind of levels of labor, as well as some of the um, racialization of labor, which was not, I was I'm sure was there, but it was very difficult to track. And then mostly it's tracked when I could confirm was through physical photographic evidence, which is of course an unwieldy and gross process to say this man looks like he might be Japanese or Chinese, but I can't tell which in this film. But that's what I was doing to try and make visible these layers of labor. Hundreds of women were at least, you know, like sometimes four or five hundred people on every lot, at least the biggest the MGM, just doing typing and how important they were to scaling and growing the system and creating like the levels of cost accounting. Um, even all the overhead departments, all of those kind of like accountants and uh, legal, that it's all women below certain levels. And so I wanted to make that visible. And through that, I learned more about women's long-term relationship with roles like editing and how they were removed from that category for a long time when editing was suddenly prestigious and story, anything considered too tedious and or that might require women's emotion, sentiment, intuition, all of the uh, qualities that are attributed to women in this sort of binary opposites view of gender where men are authoritative um, you know, like rational, logical leaders and women are excellent helpers and, you know, like followers who take great notes and are sweet and kind and support others and have no interest in credit and who can be compelled. Sounds good. Where do I get this? <laughs> and can be compelled to do all sorts of emotion work and, yeah. and sometimes can be sexually exploited on the job and performance yeah. of gender just to make it so that men will allow them to be in the workplace. So that's my long answer to maybe the third question you've asked me. I feel like I've gone about 15 minutes on each, but no, that's please. kind of work I, I of the book. Because my jesting aside in saying, this sounds good, where do I get it? It's, it's just a confirmation of how well this has worked for generations of men, principally straight, middle-class white men, but with spin-offs that were of lesser value, but still of value to other men, like queer men, for example. Uh, in terms of yeah. the way hegemonic masculinity works. It can also work against lots of men, minorities, the disabled, and others who don't fit the stereotype. But nevertheless, it's a system that operates very effectively in patriarchal terms. I don't think there's any doubt about that. So many of the studios kept excellent records. Mm -hmm. And some of these are held at places like University of California, Los Angeles, University of Wisconsin, Madison. Was it through that kind of record keeping that you were able to track some part of the contribution of these women? Or how did you learn about what they did? Yeah, that was kind of the challenge was the, the design of the research and the collection of methodolo methodologies I needed to um, un like sort of relate the the unusual evidence I was collecting alongside those troves of evidence that I could find, which, for example, I don't know that it's any more available in the same way, but the USC Warner archive was where I was able to look through the detailed, because of the women typing every every single record, the detailed personnel records of the late 40s uh, in Warner Brothers. To, and I've got their elaborate atlas of um, roles and how they're adjudicated, which came in handy because they're actually a company guild, which is a word over here that we use to describe a kind of fake union that your late your company forms to keep you from really unionizing, where they'll, they'll 
deal with you. They'll negotiate with you like you're a union, but they, they make all decisions. So this WBOSG is that's one of those organizations. And I had excellent records for other things. There aren't records. And part of it is for the same things, you know, the men of color I saw who were I realized were were indeed the janitorial and custodial workers everywhere. I found these excellent columns by one of them at Fox um, uh, that I was like, I'm pretty sure that this is gonna, you know, follow my observation and the way this person is writing is really sort of interesting and wry. Um, so I was having to look in a lot of unusual places because as you asked me right at the top of this part of the discussion, um, they women aren't, they don't make collections about paper workers. They don't make collections about these workers in archives. They are not the center of most of the widely read Hollywood memoirs. And until recently, they're not, you know, centered in, in film history in any sense. But I can I can read across all of those things, which involves a lot of reading, to find them in the footnotes and to recover them in indexes where I can I'll scan, I'll read an entire book and read the index just to find uh, the name of one woman um, that was a secretary um, through the trades to a degree. A lot of, uh, I was looking at, at one point, I looked at a lot of the industrial promotional films at the studio tours that they were making in the 19, late 10s and 1920s, which were again, to impress Wall Street and show their works as these kind of going concerns. They're not evidence of the work practices there. They're evidence of the studio's self-interest and how they wish to display themselves for others. Because I know there were women working as major directors at Universal in 1915 when their film was produced, but the only directors shown are men. And the only way women are displayed is either on stage or flashing their ankles to men who are basically going, you know, like and ogling them. And there's like usually a caption that says like, oh, the pretty birdies and all the men come out to watch it. They're either shown like that or they're shown sitting at either a sewing machine and editing, you know, like a, a patching sort of little editing reel that they use for this low wage manual labor. And they're sitting in these identical postures with their heads down and they're sort of pictured with many of them in the same posture together. Let, um, minority, you know, Lat Latina, Latin women. Um, and various uh, immigrant groups were used in costuming in certain kind of extremely painstaking work, just as they were in the garment industry. So the beading and the those kinds of things, many people recount the Guatemalan immigrants or women from Japan that were working on a separate floor all alone and that just brought their lunches and left. So there's, all, there's also people like one studio, all, their entire cement gang, as they called it, was Slavic men. <laughs> they called them Slavs. I haven't, you know, I'm not sure of exactly where those men were from, but it's interesting that these little bubbles of different groups become the labor force at studios. So there was a lot to look at there. And uh, one of the main assets was these employee newsletters that were authored by employees in each department, not the directors and stars, but everybody else and writers, but everybody else in every department would like write a column so you can really get a sense of studio life and just buying troves of old memoirs and scanning them and sort of comparing and you know people like um Edward Dimitrick who is gives the evidence in his memoir that he noticed that sexism and that exploitation and that it isn't just um natural and that people in that era aren't just like unaware that women are people he says I would watch the cattle calls and I would see how 
the men would come from all over the studio to ogle the women and I didn't like it. Um, you know, there are those kind of people, Samuel Marks, who was a story editor uh, leading the, the, the five-part story department at MGM, who spends more time in his memoir focused on the women who underlings who did in, a lot of the work than most most memoirs of that kind or all you know I've never found anybody who's willing to devote several chapters to these women so there's a lot of it's not as if nobody was recording things and then there's all these old archival magazines and trades and uh novels written by former secretaries about you know you know docu documentaries about Selznick there's just you have to scrape everywhere and a lot of it involved going into the amp the Margaret Herrick Library which is the library for the uh, Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and asking the brilliant librarians there, you know, for suggestions and then also looking like who wrote a lot of letters, who, you know, which film, which directors wrote letters. Hitchcock did not leave behind a ton of letters that he wrote. He has other, lots of other evidence, but for example, um, John Huston corresponded with his secretaries constantly and there are several notable secretaries that you can find. One of the secretaries wrote a column for the um, newsletter. There's all sorts of, so it's really kind of finding everything and then finding um, ways to work with it that's meaningful and that can put it together in a way that's not led by my my biases or my um, kind of over-report with maybe my subjects or my contemporary mindset. Uh, so I drew from all sorts of places and uh, soft systems methodologies and things like that to understand the, the kind of diverse layers and layers of kind of meaning making and social um, construction and um, you know professional sense that people are operating in in those times. Prof Aaron, I've got one more question for you if I may, sure. and then I'd like to throw it to you in case there's anything you'd like to add to what we've discussed. So my last question is a simplistic and silly one in many ways. But are things any better? And does Me Too represent some kind of epistemological and industrial rupture? <clears throat> I think things are always getting better. I, I can't say that, you know, like, there's ways in which it's much more pleasant to work in the 1940s as an underling in a story department than it is for Sherry Lansing in the 1970s when in one meeting, you know, Don Siegel basically says, well, if you don't like that scene, um, you know, they, they have a disagreement about a scene where a woman fights off a rapist and she thinks it's very important and he doesn't. He says, well, I propose that since you're so smart, how about I stand up and come at you and try to rape you right now? I won't even use a knife. And then he does it. He comes toward her and the until finally someone gets so uncomfortable, they ask him to stop. And she said, was I angry? Yes, but I had to keep my head down and just pretend I didn't mind. So that isn't as pleasant, but she's getting to do and become a leader in her working world. Now, my complaint with those women is that, you know, it's really they don't they don't ever dream of collectivism at the time and they don't seek these kind of remedies once they have the power. And I know I have a sense having read everything, why? But so um, things are getting better. And definitely Me Too was one of the biggest of these ruptures. There are little ones that happen all the time. Oscar's so white, 
Um, they, they get traction for a minute. Assistants have done it multiple times with Time's Up and various other um, uh, movements that they've made, um, but, you know, pay up Hollywood. But their assistants, they're powerless in a lot of ways and they can be ignored. So um, I think labor unions should have more of a role, should be pushed uh, more. But there are things that are happening, things that are working. Right now we're in this wave of what I would call sort of DEI capitalism, where suddenly it's important for jobs of people in power to like find quote unquote diverse people. I've had letters from people at Magico, can you find us a woman? We like women. Like, <laughs> you know, you should really learn about how to find women if you like women so much. I, it, there's a lot of asking black and brown people and women to take these low wage diversity roles. And because you care so much, you must have to do it. Like Taika Waititi said at the, there was a the director at a Vanity Fair or maybe it was a variety kind of panel on diversity said, yeah, diversity is excellent. Why do you keep interrupting my work and making me have to teach you about diversity? This should really be your job. Um, so the fact that those conversations are happening and the fact that I think I take a lot of comfort from this generation of people who, you know, I have my complaints <laughs> about 20 year olds right now. They're like a historical in my experience and they are like a little almost hammerheaded and then they're just like, why didn't you just do something else in the 90s? And I'm like, it's really hard to explain, you guys. It wasn't possible. Nobody was willing to even acknowledge this was happening or that there was a conversation to be had. But you can see that they are listening in the United States. They keep voting in elections, which young people don't normally do, but they're also thinking hard and really making sea changes in terms of public opinion about certain things. Um, I don't want to bring up Gaza right now, but it seems like, you know, but below, but under a certain age, um, people in the United States, who, which have a very kind of conditioned view of that from long term, every mythology and information on our role, they understand it. They're just, you know, they have a different view and they're really pushing it. I don't know if they get traction right now, but they are determined that it won't be the same. And the ones that I work with in school, I don't have to make these arguments to them. And they're like, of course, yes. So I think it'll be difficult, not impossible. There's lots of people who love money and power and who you know have been in a bubble, but I think it'll be difficult for these things to survive like the next 20 years. Uh, I think Hollywood and filmmaking, I hope that survives. But I think these things are in fact changing and it just, it makes me so, like the the way I feel when I see someone expressing themselves and other people listening and saying, yeah, I acknowledge that that is a thing. I, it's hard for me to credit because it did not happen. We would just see it over and over people being fired or ignored or blamed when I was their age. But it's definitely, I don't think you can put a lot of the sexual abuse back in that bottle anymore. And there are other areas in which that is changing. And of course, as we know about the TV writers we were talking about earlier, the thing that really creates change there, in my opinion, and I'm kind of also thinking of Felicia Henderson's work um, on the culture of the writer's room and this kind of putting one different person in there with people and having them try to tell jokes about people like them to men who, who are from one sort of other background. It doesn't work. Uh, what works is multiple people from different backgrounds. It starts to create a little more traction where people say, no, no, that's real. And then the even the guys who are so certain of their comedic tastes, they understand, oh, right. These are uh, jokes that apply to like more people. <laughs> 
oh, suddenly I understand why this is bringing something to the process. Just as, you know, Walmart, I think they had a CEO, they had a board that had more than one woman on it. And it makes total sense for their bottom line to have a diverse array of executives to try and meet their customers where they live. So in some ways, it's grotesque that they people don't do this because it's the right thing. But I do think once they start doing the right thing by force or not, sometimes they see the benefit. And it's a bit like in this country, things like social security or retirement benefits, the things that we have as Americans a right to. You can, Once you put the, you know, it's hard to, Europeans, <laughs> I love your healthcare systems, but once you give people healthcare from the government, it's really hard to take it away. Um, I do worry about, it makes me think a lot about organizations and power structures, because there's a lot of impulse to flatten them and remove them and destroy and rebuild. And it's just that, unfortunately, a lot of these organizations and these governments, that's where right, rights are enshrined. And so any kind of full revision can is immediately revisiting rights. But so that's my long answer to your question. And I do think things are changing. I think that we just have to keep our mind, you know, just keep pushing. And is there anything you'd like to add to what we've chatted about? Something we missed or didn't touch on as fully as you might like? Well, I, I feel like I've I've said quite a bit. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, I just uh, appreciate the chance to have the conversation. And, um, yeah, really just I I feel like pretty inspired by what I'm seeing lately in terms of the culture, that, the works of culture that this produces. Um, but uh, it, it's always important to think about who's making those decisions and who's allowed in that room and what they have to do to stay in the room, which is what people think of it as. I need to stay in the room no matter what. Um, I would like that to change. And so that's what I've been saying this whole discussion. Thanks very much, Prof Hill. It was great to chat with you. Thank you. I enjoyed myself.